Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of Hidden Noise. I'm Rebecca Siegel. And I'm Abby Sandler. And today we have a very special episode in honor of all of the art fairs opening next week. If you're someone like me, the idea of having to go to five fairs in one week is absolutely terrifying. And if you're someone like Rebecca, this is just another week in the art world. (laughs) But we're here today to make this all a little easier for you. So on this week's episode of Hidden Noise, we'll review four art fairs we think are worth visiting. The Armory Show, Nada, Collective, and Independent. And later we'll be joined by Eater's Stephanie Tudor for her food and drink recommendations to keep you going, and Matthew Higgs from Independent Art Fair for the Even Eight. But first... Let's get started with the fair rundown. Yeah, art fair is a fun artistic term for trade show. A large amount of space is divided into booths. Each gallery pays for their own booth and brings work to sell. Fairs used to be known only by the quality of the galleries who participated. But because these are now major tent events, each fair also has additional elements. Sometimes there are presentations organized by local and international curators. There's often a bevy of food options and lots of lounge seating to make a day of it. The biggest fair opening next week is the Armory Show, which is confusingly not in the Park Avenue Armory. It's actually on the West Side Highway at 55th Street in Piers 92 and 94. And it is massive. Yeah, the Armory Show was originally an exhibition at the Armory, I believe in around 1913. And it was famous because it marked some of the first American exposure to European art. Since the mid-90s, the name has been co-opted by this fair, and it's really expanded in the last 15 years. The Armory Show has become one of the largest U.S. art fairs. And while this isn't necessarily the most flattering, it's definitely accurate. It's a little bit like Bloomingdale's. There is (laughs) something for everyone. Major blue chip galleries have enormous booths front and center in the middle of the enormous Pier 94 presentation. But there are also other segments like Focus, where very young artists are presented, or Platform, where the Armory commissions major large-scale works. There's also a segment called Presents, which focuses on galleries that are under 10 years old. At these special sections, you get to see what separates Armory from the rest of the field. You also get to see older works at Pier 92, which focuses on 20th century art, often older, more classic work, not cutting-edge contemporary. And frankly, for cutting-edge contemporary, you shouldn't be at the Armory. Make your way south on the West Side Highway to Skylight Clarkson Square, home of two more fairs. One of which is Nada. NADA stands for New Art Dealers Association, which was founded in 2002 as an organization that supports new voices in contemporary art. So both individuals and galleries who are pushing the conversation about contemporary art internationally. Not long after NADA was founded, they started organizing fairs for their gallery members to participate in. This is now the seventh edition in New York. It used to be in May, but now it's in March. I'm not sure why. Rebecca, do you know? They wanted to align with the rest of these major fairs which are going on. That seemed pretty self-explanatory now that I hear you say that. (laughs) And think of this as, you know, the youngest and coolest without being completely like Bushwick. Exactly. But be wary. (laughs) The quality level at NADA can be hit and miss. I've walked through NADA presentations where I wanted to buy, and I've walked through NADA presentations where I wanted to die. And you just have to go in with an open mind and a real desire to see something new. But more importantly, what I am most excited about is collective design, because I would say I love furniture just as much, if not more, than I love art. True. (laughs) 
Collective design, unlike the other fairs, brings together a curated selection of design-focused galleries from around the world, while also incorporating site-specific installations by local designers and museums. And finally, my strong recommendation is for what I consider to be the nomad hotel of art fairs, the Independent. Independent started about a decade ago, and we'll be joined later by Matthew Higgs, who will tell us much more about it. But the thing that I want to point out about the fair is that it has an enormous number of solo presentations. People who haven't shown in New York before, like Rebecca Ackroyd and Christine Wing, or other artists who are sort of more firmly established, but who look very different in this kind of context, like Hans-Peter Feldman and Lizzie Fitch, Ryan Tricartan. So one of the things I would say is that independent creates a very different kind of environment. But let's be honest, guys, only Rebecca can do four art fairs in one day. So (laughs) do not try this at home. It takes a lot of practice. But we are bringing in Stephanie Tudor from Eater to tell us where you should take your water breaks, because I promise a little food goes a long way. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks very much for joining us today. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. First, can you tell us a little bit about your role at Eater? Yeah, for sure. So I am the senior editor on Eater New York, and Eater has dozens of cities across the country and actually also in Montreal and London, and we cover food and restaurants in each of those cities. Everything from this place is closing to the best place to get sushi, so news, maps, and guides, and also cultural conversation, much like even an art surrounding food. And um, we have a national site that really leans heavily into that. We are very excited, given your expertise in food and drink, for your advice for all of our art fair goers. Because as Abby and I both know, there is something about the art fairs which requires some coffee, if not a major lunch break to get through this. I'm sure. I mean, I think you probably need stamina to kind of get through things like this. Exactly. So we're going to start with the Armory Show, which is on the West Side Highway in the 50s. It's not exactly a location in Manhattan that's known for its food options. That is true. Luckily for everyone, listening our critic lives in that area and so he yes he is a huge proponent of the food there and you can find him most days writing at gotham west market i don't know if you guys have been there it is a pass it today there you go (laughs) it's a food hall but it's a 12 minute walk it's full of tapas burgers tacos there's wi-fi you can like chill there and take a breather if you need get all the coffee you might need and the two standouts if you're going to have to pick what to eat as uh, Ryan Sutton would recommend our critic are Ivan Ramen and um, this guy is a Jew from Long Island who moved to Japan and blew all the Japanese out of the water and became one of the most successful ramen shops in Tokyo and now he has ramen shops in New York City and Ivan Ramen is one of them and correct me if I'm wrong but they have pastrami buns I know they did I'm not 100% sure they're on the menu at the moment but he makes I did not know about those I lived on them for like a solid six months yeah, and he, he, he's, he's an innovative chef for sure. I think because he didn't grow up so heavily embedded in ramen culture, he's able to take a lot of liberties with the cuisine. He does things like you make the ramen with rye flour. And so that's just something that really wasn't done before him and just adds a little bit of a different element when you're eating the ramen. Something else in there is corner slice, which to show you the breadth of this chef is his pizzeria in the 
in the food hall and he does really excellent things with bread and is a fanatic about sourcing his flour. So Gotham Market's a great choice. Another thing nearby is Meske, which is Ethiopian. So if you're feeling something a little different from a food hall setting, you can head there. It's a 13-minute walk. Super affordable, very flavorful Ethiopian fare. So you can order like a platter and then you get that great sponge bread that Ethiopian oh food God, is I known love, for and you just kind of spoon bread. it all up. <laughs> <laughs> so those are two options. It's going to require a tiny bit of a walk, but maybe you need to stretch your legs. I don't know. Absolutely. And it's actually on the way to the other fairs. Mm-hmm. Nada and Collective Design are on the West Side Highway right around Houston Street, which is also a place that I can't say I know exactly where to get coffee or food. Yeah, so I'm going to push you a tiny bit more north, but only a five-minute walk to Westville, which is a little mini chain that has a lot of places around uh, New York City. And it's just very unpretentious, very well-sourced American staples. They have a lot of vegetables on the menu. So if you're kind of concerned about what you're eating or you're vegetarian or have restrictions, whatever may have you, that's a really easy place to go. And they have a full bar, so... There's that added bonus. Vegetables and alcohol. Vegetables and booze, (laughs) you're covered. Something else is Jeju Noodle Bar, which is Korean ramen. I guess I'm recommending a lot of ramen right now, but you got to fill up to get through these days, right? So in Korea, instant ramen is really, really popular. Um, So this chef is Korean and he, it's basically his take on instant ramen in Korea. So there's kimchi in the, in the ramen and a lot of Korean flavors, but it's really high quality. That sounds really good. That sounds excellent. So after the carbo loading, then we go farther downtown to independent art fair, which is at Spring Studios. Spring Studios is located on Varick, sort of right by the entrance to the Holland Tunnel, which in many ways makes it both a pedestrian and a food wasteland. <laughs> this was the one I had honestly the hardest time coming up with recommendations for. I don't I don't feel bad for the people living there, you know. <laughs> in terms of the food, it's it's not the easiest place. However, I think a few good options are Bubby's, which is an American comfort food spot. Classic Tribeca. Classic Tribeca. They're known for their pie, so you can have a little sweet moment. And they have an excellent happy hour with food and drinks for $7 each that starts at 4 p.m. So it's a nice early option. That's fantastic. So when you finish up at the fair, you can go straight there to sort of revive yourself before dinner. Exactly. And if you want to continue on with dinner, a place that's also nearby that is brand brand new is called Bombay Bread Bar and Ooh. it is an Indian restaurant that focuses on bread so naan and kulchas that's and like my dream Belpori. I think <laughs> yeah so this the chef Lloyd Cardoz he um, used to work for Danny Meyer who owns Shake Shack and Union Square Cafe and Gramercy Tavern and he's since for quite a few years now struck out on his own and he opened this place Powwala which is delicious which no longer exists. It's now Bombay Bread Bar. Fantastic. Okay, I had no idea. Because he was originally... Because it happened like on Tuesday. Like okay. two and this days is ago. a fully different... They just changed the name or it's like a fully different So he restaurant. created... His intent with Powala was to create like a casual, raucous place that people could go, chill, have a good time, eat some breads, and be on their way. Um, and then when Powala opened, it became a little more formal and the design was really muted and I think people knew him for when he worked at Tabla which was a more upscale restaurant that 
doesn't exist anymore. And so that's what they expected. And that's how they interacted with the restaurant. And that's not what he wanted. So he decided to close it. He completely redid the interior. It looks awesome in there. It's super colorful. There's a floor to ceiling mural done by a young Pakistani artist. And it's now the, the menu focuses much more heavily on these breads so that it kind of conveys the intent of not not such a serious meal. Right. And not nearly as formal. Correct. So after we make our way from one ramen to another <laughs> to a bread restaurant, <laughs> we are going to have made an incredible day of both walking off the calories and consuming them all at the same time. I did say Westville. There is yes, there vegetable. is Westville. There is Westville. <laughs> but we very much are incredibly grateful, in part selfishly, because we will do this route at least three times over the course of the week. So, so we're, we're going to get to try everything. Exactly. On this so we will. You will know where to find us if you can't find us in the halls of a fair thank you so much thanks so much stephanie for joining us yeah thanks for having me so to get a better idea of one of the many fairs we're sending you all to this week we have matthew higgs co-founder of independent art fair joining us for the even eight matthew thank you so much for coming into greenpoint this morning my pleasure before we get started with the even eight can you tell our listeners a little bit about Independent and how it got started. Independent was founded by Elizabeth D. and Darren Fluke, two gallerists, one in New York and one in London. And from the outset, I was invited to occupy this role of uh, a kind of sort of creative director or curator of the fair. Uh, my job title has changed or keeps changing. <laughs> and um, I think Independent was really uh a kind of reaction to what was happening with art fairs at that time, and this is nearly 10 years ago now, that art fairs were getting bigger, uh, they were more like trade shows, and that sort of intimacy, the kind of intimate encounters you might have with art when you go around the galleries, seemed to have been lost in the fair model. So really it was an attempt to try and create a fair that more accurately mirrored or reflected the experience you might have in a gallery. And we also, I think, the an ambition was to try and create a fair that artists would actively be interested in participating in. So the idea really was to move it away from uh, a sort of trade show or marketplace-like atmosphere and move it something closer to the sort of ambitions that artists might have for their work. And uh, outside of that, certainly from my perspective, it felt like there was a real opportunity to bring in different voices to the art fair environment because obviously participating in art fair is very expensive and often that means that it uh, excludes certain kinds of galleries. The one advantage of Independent was certainly in the beginning was it was quite reasonable to participate and it gave us an opportunity to invite a lot of what I would call maverick Dealers, <laughs> dealers who I feel have sort of quite idiosyncratic and quite visionary programs. And that included quite a number of dealers who work with self-taught outsider and folk art. And I'd been interested in those things for a long time. And certainly at White Combs, we'd been including a lot of those kind of materials and ideas in our program. And it seemed like a, a very good kind of match uh, to present this work alongside other kinds of contemporary art. And, um, you know, 10 years ago, that was quite unusual. And now it's pretty typical. I think most fairs have started to embrace these worlds. Uh, but it, from the outset, it's been an important part of the narrative, an important part of the conversation at Independent. And I think beyond that, the goal really was to try and create a, a fair without obvious hierarchies. 
So it wasn't like the blue chip galleries had the biggest and best position spaces. It was really trying to create a dialogue or a conversation amongst galleries and amongst artists that was unexpected. And that's always been reflected in the architecture within the fair. Yeah, I think from the beginning, the, the, the goal, when initially the fair was at the old Deer building on 22nd Street, and then more recently uh, at Spring Studios, has been to try and create a more open architecture, uh, an architecture that perhaps is closer to exhibition design uh, than trade fair design, and to try and move away from that sort of culture of booths and aisles um, that right, we're familiar with from other fairs. <laughs> And also I think the scale of the fair has been important from the beginning. So around 50 or 60 galleries participate. I think there's been opportunities or perhaps some sort of external pressures for the fair to grow. But I think its scale is very important. And uh, in that respect, it's sort of mirrored on things like the ADAA fair, which you know has always, I think, been a fair that people have gravitated towards and enjoyed because of its scale, amongst other things. So the goal is always to keep independent as a kind of manageable experience because I think if anyone who's been to the fairs at the you know the large convention centers or elsewhere it can be overwhelming and can be <laughs> or it is guaranteed over- without a doubt yeah it's overwhelming <laughs> so we were very keen to try and find uh, spaces a that were amenable to showing art so at Deer and Spring Studio I think we found that but then also to try and find spaces that created a kind of sort of uh, a more manageable experience for the visitors, the exhibitors, and artists alike. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work at White Columns and the institution generally, which I believe after 20 years is moving to a new space in April? Uh, yeah, I'm the director of White Columns and the chief curator, and White Columns will celebrate its 50th anniversary in 2020. Mazel tov. It was founded in 1970 by a group of artists in Soho, uh, including Gordon Matter Clark, amongst others. And And it changed its name in 1979 to White Columns. And we've been in the current venue in the meatpacking district for 20 years. And about two years ago, we were told that we would have to move. And I think like anybody else uh, being displaced in New York, it was a substantial problem for the organization because, you know, it's extraordinarily expensive to find good space, accessible space, and space that makes sense for artists in New York City right now. So we looked for over two years, including some of that time looking with artist space, with a view to finding mm-hmm. a space together. That didn't work out. And I think, you know, about a year ago, if you'd asked me this question, I would have been in a panic mode uh, <laughs> because we hadn't found anywhere. We'd looked everywhere, and we just simply couldn't afford space. And then miraculously, a space on the same street became available. So we're actually moving two blocks west on Horatio Street. So we're going to be between the the river and uh, Washington Street in the building that's adjacent to the Whitney Museum. So we're really happy that we found a great space. It's in a neighborhood that we have a nearly 40-year relationship with now, and we're excited about the future. I think the space is uh, quite different, and I think it'll give the organization an opportunity just to gently rethink itself and uh, reanimate its core mission. And our mission really hasn't changed. Our mission is to show the work of artists who have yet to benefit from any kind of critical curatorial or commercial support. And we're pretty much the only uh, first-generation alternative art space still doing that. Your entire mission is really based on being ahead of the curve. Um, It's about supporting artists when they need support. The curve comes later, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For those of you who don't know, White Columns also puts together an annual print collection, which I highly recommend everyone support the organization by pursuing that print collection. Thank you. Of course. Retail. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a good nod to helping nonprofit art spaces in New York, and you guys have made it incredibly easy, so everybody should get behind that. 
Well, on that note, we'll, we'll get started on the even eight. Uh, the first question we have for you right now is what is the most underrated show or cultural event happening in New York? I've thought about this, so I'm going to say a couple of things, two things. Uh, there's an amazing artist called Mike Cloud, who's got a current, has a show at Thomas Urban Gallery on 26th Street in Chelsea. And Mike's an artist whose work I've followed for many years. He had a fantastic show at PS1. Uh, a number of years ago, organized by Bob Nickass. And uh, I think he's one of the most innovative, uh, intelligent, and visionary artists working with painting right now. And uh, his work should, and I think will, be far better known. But he has a show up right now. Uh, the other show, which um, I'll blow my own trumpet. Uh, <laughs> Please do. Uh, there's an exhibition currently on view at Printed Matter until the 3rd of March. Uh, which is of my publishing project from the 1990s, uh, which was called Imprint 93. And um, it was organized by London's Whitechapel Art Gallery. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's on view in New York. And I think people would find it interesting. It's uh, between 1993 and 1998, I published 50 editions with artists, including the first artist books with people like Chris Ophelia, Peter Doig, Jeremy Della, Hilary Lloyd, Elizabeth Payton. And for the most part, it's completely under unknown and quite self-consciously unknown. And it's a rare opportunity to see what I was doing in the 1990s. <laughs> With a bunch of artists who sort of are very much still within everyone's current contemporary parlance. Yeah, uh, the artists continue to do amazing things, of course. And what is the most overrated show or cultural event happening? We know this is a trick question in many ways. Well, I was uncomfortable uh, <laughs> about the idea of overrated because I'm not sure I really think about things like that because ultimately I think everything's of interest and I think uh, it's it's uh, how things uh, accumulate that we start to really sort of understand uh, the value and meaning of anything so I actually can't think of a single thing that I would regard as overrated. That's very generous. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, we'll take that but on another note then what do you think is the most exciting recent development in New York's cultural landscape? Well I find this quite hard to answer and um, I, I give it a lot of thought because uh, you know I don't want to come across as a pessimist but it seems like a, we're at an extremely unusual and tough time in New York City right now um, and I think you know, there are obviously a number of reasons for that, but I think one of the, the big problems for the city is just the uh, inaffordability of living and working in New York City. And, you know, I know that from the front line of trying to run a small not-for-profit organization where you're trying to rent space in a city that's too expensive to rent space in. You're trying to pay living wages to people that you work with. You're trying to cover their health care costs in a city where salaries and health care costs are going up. And, uh so I find at least, for me at least, uh, in, certainly in the last three or four years, the city's changed dramatically and uh, probably or arguably not for the better. So that's definitely not exciting. But I think it's the determining uh, factor that's conditioning our lives in the city right now is just how unaffordable it's become. And I think that doesn't, that obviously just doesn't apply only to cultural organizations. It applies mm -hmm. to every kind of organization that's trying to function or operate in the city. So that polarization seems to be becoming more and more um, difficult to negotiate. On a completely separate note, what is the most important book or film you've read or watched recently? Uh, well, I only read detective novels. So. Fantastic. What's your, what's your author of choice? <laughs> Give us your top three. <laughs> 
The one I'm about to finish is uh, Force of Nature by Jane Harper. She's a writer based in Australia, but I think she's English. And uh, she wrote a, a very uh, amazingly well-received book last year called The Dry. Oh, sure. That's going to be turned into a movie. And this is the follow-up. And it's also set in the Australian bush. But I'm a really big fan of the Icelandic writers and the Nordic writers generally. But I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, so apologies to... Icelandic listeners. Uh, Arnold Indri Adson is my favorite uh, detective novelist of the past couple of years, and uh, he writes these sort of very melancholic uh, novels set in, uh, in Iceland, so I enjoy those too. But to answer your question, the lead singer of The Fall, Marky e. Smith, died on the 24th of January, and um, Two books of his collected writings and lyrics were published. One was published in 1985. It's an extremely out-of-print book. And another was published in the 2000s, which is also out-of-print but easier to find. And I revisited uh, both books this month, the month after he died. And uh, not that I think I need a reminding, but just to be reminded of uh, this sort of extraordinary, visionary, almost ecstatic form of writing that he decided to uh you know contextualize in the world of popular music just seems wildly unique and uh uh you know wildly unparalleled to me and so it was a real pleasure to revisit his writings which you know hopefully i think once his estate is resolved or whatever needs to be resolved that somebody will have an opportunity to republish because uh i feel like everyone every home should have a copy of the collected works of marquis smith do they feel like a snapshot, like a moment in time, or do they hold up? Oh, yeah, why they hold up. I mean, it's um, it's like art, really, uh, except for it's better than art. <laughs> and if you could be an expert on any subject, what would it be? Uh, this is easy, uh, and it's actually a subject I like to feel I know a lot about, but I certainly don't know enough, but it's disco. And, <laughs> oh, uh, disco, good one. Dis- disco is my absolute favorite thing. I th- <laughs> I think it's the most important American cultural form. So I understand the the blues and jazz are important, and they're obviously also a part of the DNA of disco. But disco, for me at least, is is the the defining uh, American cultural form, certainly American post-war cultural form. And I think the most important socially and politically as well, apart from the fact that the music's extraordinary. And um, I think it's somewhat uh, maligned uh, culturally. Uh, I was really shocked when Los Angeles Mocha, uh, when Jeffrey Deitch proposed to do an exhibition about disco, I was really shocked about the backlash from the arts community around that idea because it seemed to me that people had just hopelessly misread or misunderstood what disco was. And disco was, and I think it is, and it remains, uh, you know, one of the most powerful social and political cultural movements uh, of the past 50 years. And uh, I was really disappointed that people had an issue with making an exhibition about disco because for the most part, and certainly in its earliest days in the late 60s and early 70s, disco was a largely underground black and Latino culture. It was largely queer. And it strikes me that it was a form of resistance that has been somewhat kind of uh, trivialized by, by, what John hap- by what happened to disco. But that happened in 1978. So by then, disco had effectively finished in its true form, which was in the late 60s through the mid-late 70s. And, uh, yeah, I still remain... So I think, you know, I, I find it puzzling that people are perfectly happy with uh, a museum to do an exhibition around the blues because that's perceived as being serious and worthy of our attention, but... Or David Bowie, for that matter. Yeah, and I... I yeah, which was a great exhibition, and it's, I'm excited it's coming to Brooklyn because I saw it in Chicago and I thought it was fantastic. But I think 
disco is you know it's, it's obviously not a lost art form and there are obviously people who take it very seriously the british writer tim lawrence has done the greatest probably the greatest writing about it but someone like vin Saletti, the new yorker's photography critic was the best writer about disco in the 1970s and white columns published vince's writings on disco uh, from that period and uh, I feel it's just it's ripe for rediscovery and it's ripe for further inquiry where do you go to be alone in New York art galleries really yeah you do the, you do the circuit to be alone uh, you can spend a lot of time on your own in art galleries and I think you know one of the things people have discussed in the the last few years and certainly uh, uh, not not talking about museums but in relation to commercial galleries is the how people visit and use galleries has changed dramatically in the last 10 years that uh, you know you see some of the most senior dealers talking about really the audience disappearing and I spend a lot of my time in art galleries uh, and I take my dog with me Olive so I'm not technically alone um <laughs> But I find it's it's a great place to spend time with yourself and obviously other people's ideas. What kind of dog do you have? I have a beautiful dog, and uh, she's a sort of Shih Tzu poodle mix, and you can follow her on Instagram. I was going to say she's an Instagram star. It's at, oh, I at, know at Olive 24-7. <laughs> <laughs> Good handle. Where do you take someone you're trying to impress? Well, this is easy, too. White columns. <laughs> to your baby. <laughs> You know, hopefully, I mean, that's that's where our you know, white columns, that's where our collective energies are going, where, you know, working hard and trying to make a difference and trying to behave differently. And we hope that that is legible uh, to people. So that's that's where I would take someone if I was trying to impress them. And aside from next week's independent art fair, what is on your radar for the rest of 2018? Well, before next week's independent, this week, Zoe Leonard's survey opens at the Whitney Museum, and I couldn't be more excited about that. Uh, she is and has been an extraordinary artist for a long time, and uh, I'm excited to see you know the whole range of her work together. So there's been some interesting uh, posts on Instagram, Instagram from people who work at the Whitney Museum of this amazing installation that she's done in the offices and public spaces at the Whitney where she's taken Linda Nochlin's famous text, Why Have There Been No Famous Women Artists, and inserted fragments of that text throughout the institution. So that's a teaser for what I think is to come. And then the other thing uh, I'm looking forward to, but uh, it was going to be a New York experience, but now I have to get the train to D.C. is to see Lynn Cook's exhibition, Outliers and American Vanguard Art, which is an exhibition that Linda's been talking to me about for at least five years and uh, I was incredibly excited to see it and I initially understood that it was going to come to the Met and then the Met cancelled their participation in the tour so I now have to take the train at great expense to Washington (laughs) DC to see it there. It will travel then I think to Atlanta and Los Angeles but that's something I'm incredibly excited to see and it also includes the work of Zoe Leonard. And that exhibition is very much about a group of artists who have at some point been considered outsider, but who are very much sort of being recontextualized within the history of 20th century art. Yeah, and I think, you know, Lynn's been one of the longstanding sort of pioneers in thinking about the ongoing kind of entanglements between the work of self-taught artists, folk artists, vernacular artists, and more conventionally trained contemporary artists. Uh, Lynn organized the amazing Rosemary Trockel retrospective that came to the New Museum after a tour in Europe, which... Uh, sort of aligned Rosemary Trockel's work with the work of various outsider and self-taught artists. What I think is interesting about the Vanguard exhibition, which outliers, which I haven't seen yet, is that uh, it's structured around 
these historical moments in the 20th century when there were significant exhibitions in the United States around this kind of work, going back to Alfred Barr's time at MoMA when he supported the work of folk and outsider artists, and then to the historic exhibitions of uh, African-American artists from the American South and so on. So I'm super interested to see uh, Lynn's take on this. So if we have time to get to D.C., to see the outlier show but in new york we will try to find mike cloud's exhibition before it closes as well as uh, zoe leonard at the Whitney. and obviously come to see us at the independent next week exactly thank you so much matthew for joining us my pleasure so just to recap we hope you can all make it to all four of the fairs that we covered the armory show nada independent and collective design and a big thank you to Stephanie Tudor from Eater for joining us today and Matthew Higgs. I'm Rebecca Siegel. And I'm Abby Sandler. And this is Hidden Noise. <laughs>